Before we get going, I'd like to say thank you to the people and companies that support this show. The first is Bull Bitcoin. If you're buying Bitcoin in Canada, you should be doing it at Bull Bitcoin. It's a non-custodial exchange with a focus on privacy. When you make the order, you input your own self-custody receive address, which means as soon as the order is completed, it goes right to you. You don't assume any of the exchange risk. The guys at Bull Bitcoin are also behind BitcoinSupport.com. This is for those of you who need some help getting your self-custody arrangement set up properly in a manner that's both secure, but also easy to manage and engage with. They have a number of different packages available based on your needs. So check them out at BitcoinSupport.com and find the one that's right for you. Also, CoinKite, the makers of the famous cold card hardware wallet. The latest edition, the MK4, recently dropped. It has a USB-C connector, NFC tap functionality, dual secure elements, and lots of other great features that many of us have come to expect and love from ColdCard and CoinKite that help you to optimize your Bitcoin security setup. Visit coldcard.com to learn more about the MK4 and visit coinkite.com to learn more about all their other awesome products for helping you to secure and have fun with your Bitcoin. Let's do it. We've, we've met or spoken somewhere before, right? Yeah, at the conference there in Miami. Very briefly, I, I uh, waylaid you when we were going up to uh, Jack Mahler's speech um, just to say hi. So. Right. I was like, man, your face is familiar as fuck, but I couldn't yeah. place where, where I'd seen it. Yeah, I'm one of the guys who yells at you to stop and shake your hand. I'm sure one of the millions. <laughs> All right, we're being live streamed. Speaking of Miami, what'd you think? Had you been down to a, a conference before? No, that was my first one. So I've been, um, I've kind of been thrown into the deep end this year since January because um, I'm a relative noob and I was just, uh, and I just started working full time in the industry in January. And so I've been kind of, going to my first conferences and meetups and, and like shaking the hands of guys like you, who, who I've been listening to and inter interacting online with for the last couple of years, right. Basically since March, 2020, the COVID crash. So um, definitely full on the conference scene um, is, is amazing. If you've never experienced it, I thought like, I thought Bitcoin Miami was unbelievable. Obviously I'm in the deep end of the mining side of things so uh, i just spent most of my time around the mining stage and the uh the, the mining booths in in the conference floor so um i didn't have to interact too much with the quote-unquote uh altcoins or however you like to call them right well i just um so you got in to the like you're kind of orange pilled in march 2020 and then you started working in the space recently early this year yeah, man. Like I don't want to overrepresent myself here at all. I, I'm definitely not an OG. Um, no, 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 I, no, I am. I'm, I'm definitely a relative noob. I, I only fell down the rabbit hole in March of 2020 when the, when the market crashed and then COVID came down the, uh, the lockdowns that, that they seem to, to uh, feel are necessary for our own safety. Right. So obviously that sent us uh, a lot of us down the rabbit hole of, of wondering and asking you know, what's actually going on, what, what's actually happening in, in our financial system, in our political system, and mm. why are we subject to these, these mandates from, from unelected bureaucrats that are, that are actually dictating how I'm allowed to live my life uh, down, to the, down to the granular level of literally locking us inside our own houses. So 
I'm sure it was a wake up call for more than just more a lot more people than just me, but essentially um, that was the beginning of the trajectory. And now two years and a bit later, the, this is where I find myself. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because <clears throat> like just a few minutes ago, I was going through some of your, your texts and you had recently retweeted a thread that you put out in like, I guess, spring of 2021 and two things. One, I didn't even see, you know, I, I didn't like the tweet at the time, I guess, cause it just slipped by the radar because you were recommending a book called the rebel. And I was just reading some of the, the tweets or some of your summaries or, or impressions of it. And it seems awesome. Like I, I haven't heard anyone uh, recommend that book before, but I'll, I'm definitely going to have to look into it after we finish up here today. And I mean, speaking of like being a relative noob, I mean, you certainly seem to have like dived head first. I mean, you, you shared like a collection of your books and I think you even like took each one and maybe summarized it a little bit. And it's like, it's, it, it's not even the starter kit for Bitcoiners. It's like a fairly extensive, uh, you know, selection of books to really help construct a perspective around what's going on and what should be going on and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, what's it been like since uh, you realized that, you know, because of what was happening around COVID that everything was kind of fucked. I mean, how has, how have things changed for you in terms of your perspective since then? We'll get into what you're doing for work a bit later. Yeah, man. So, so first of all, I'll say that I'm an introvert historically. Um, I've been uh, a segment of the silent majority for, for most of my life, uh, but I've been an avid reader for all of my life. So just always read books, read books, read books. Um, a big believer in, in if you don't know history, then you're just going to be one of those ostriches that stick in their head, stick in your head in the sand and hoping that everything's going to work out in the present and in the future. So if you don't actually know and study history, then, then you can't prepare for, for the future. So, um, yeah. And so then basically um, once I started to stop being a member of the silent majority and one of the vocal minority, uh, and I have, have, have to actually thank Marty Bant for that because um, in the early days of Clubhouse, we, we were chatting on Clubhouse and he, he's like, stand up, like stand up for what you believe in and start speaking out for what you believe in. And who knows what kind of impact that's going to have on the world. Like maybe the majority of people will think you crazy, like my mom or my whoever in the legacy world that we're used to that, that know us from the old days, but who knows what kind of impact you're having on, on the, on the rest of the silent majority. And so honestly, that's just one way that, that I feel like I can put my stuff out there is just the threads on, on the books that I'm reading. So like I say, right in my pinned tweet, that it's just essentially a distillation of the thoughts that, that I gather from all the books that I read. And then I just summarize those in threads for each book. And then I just pin that as a thread of threads. Um, just, just to show everyone and, and tell everyone and share with people, um, you know, the thoughts and the books that have been transformative in my own journey, in my own life, in my own thoughts. Um, and whether or not anyone finds that useful, who knows? Um, but for me, it's definitely useful for me. And I'm just putting it out there. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. So in terms of, you know, you said you've always been a big reader and probably somewhat of a unconventional thinker, perhaps, or someone somewhat anti-establishment by the sounds of it. But how did, 
like coming into Bitcoin and learning about Bitcoin, how, if at all, did the pursuit of understanding Bitcoin reframe perspectives on, you know, a variety of the big things that actually go toward forming our perspective. So whether it be economics or whether it be politics or whether it be ideas around, you know, value and meaning and these sorts of things, like, did any of that shift and change, you know, since you've been pursuing understanding of Bitcoin? Um, so I, I like to tell people that I was a Bitcoiner before I found Bitcoin. And you might know kind of what I'm getting at there, but like sure. I say, I'm a, I'm a relative noob to Bitcoin, but um, the values I was raised with, the, the critical thinking, um, quote unquote, rebellious skills that, that are endearing to me in my personal life and then the lives of others kind of embody the qualities of Bitcoin. So then when, when I found Bitcoin in March of 2020, everything just clicked and fit together. It was, it, it was um, whatever you want to call it. it. It was the, the moment where, where you realize, oh, this is why this is happening. This is why things are set up this way. And this is actually um, an answer for, for everything I see uh, that's wrong with the money and our incentives in the fiat world, right? Mm. So, so yes, everything changed when I found it, but everything didn't change with me. It just was a, it just was a manifestation of the, of the qualities that I had already been embodying my entire life, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, my experience was very similar to that. However, there's definitely, you know, there's been a lot of change to be fair, but like you, like a lot of the principles that you might encounter in Bitcoin, many of them I'd already identified as being very valuable or important principles and, and have tried to orient my life around them. However, one, one thing on the emotional, I guess, or psychological aspect of things was I felt like I was, even though I was aware of the problems at a fairly intimate level, I, I didn't see a way in which they could be rectified. They seemed insurmountable. And Bitcoin, once I realized what it was, or at least what I think it is, that turned around and I started to feel that they were, uh, they could be resolved. And of course, that is like a 180 in terms of how you construe or imagine your future you know, and you have hope.com in your Twitter handle. I mean, that, you know, that's the word really that you can be as aligned with these principles as much as you want. But if you exist in the context of a society or culture that you don't see be, having a direct path or even a possible path to having them flourish or be amplified in the culture, then it can be a very uh, isolating feeling for some. But now when I identify Bitcoin as being a very viable solution to that problem and even a better one than I could have ever conceived of, then that gets totally flipped. And then it, you know, that alienation turns to animation. It turns, it turns to energy. It turns to ambition. It turns to term, it turns into wanting to devote oneself to actualizing that latent potential. And so was that something similar? Did something similar happen to you in that regard? Like the emotional psychological sort of domain? Yeah, man, and I think you can see it manifested in what I'm what I'm choosing to spend my life and working on right now, right? So, so two years later, I'm working full time in Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining and the things that I feel are are the most important things to be working on. And I love what what Jack said at 
Bitcoin 2021 when he was still with Twitter. Uh, he's like, well, if Bitcoin needs me, I'm going to be leaving here and working full time on Bitcoin. And a year later, look what he's doing, right? So, mm. so like people realize that what's what's the best use of of our time and our energy that we could be that we could be doing at this moment in our lives. And kind of like once you realize all those factors that that we've been talking about like this is why we're here and this is why we're doing what we're doing at this point in time we're not just existing um in our pods in the fiat world kind of waiting for the next party to forget about our crappy lives because you know the government's printing so much money that i have no purchasing power and my kids will never be able to afford to buy a house like no we're we like like hope.com like that hope is action manifested in our lives at this very moment, right? Yeah. Basically, it inspires people to realize that they can take back control of their life in many respects and then causes them to commit themselves to doing just that. And, you know, and then of course, it's nothing but a slew of, even though there might be you know, very large challenges ahead. And by no means it's just understanding Bitcoin fix everything in life. But I mean, certainly if you speak to a lot of Bitcoiners that have had a similar experience, the, a lot of them will report that so many different metrics of their life have improved as a result of that understanding and then devoting themselves to what is ultimately a, a, a cause larger than even themselves, you know, and all the better that, that, uh, Bitcoin is structured in such a way that you can both give to the cause for both your own individual benefit and for the benefit of, you know, the network and the cause as a whole. Yeah. So we just, we just dove deep into the metaphysical end here right off the bat. Hey, John, like, like, well, you know, you know what, you know okay, what I'm how, like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So everyone, like the, everyone who starts listening, they're just like, okay, these guys are all, all already far in the deep end, but no, I, I appreciate it, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so how did you, how did you make the determination to focus on the, the mining aspect of things? Uh, okay. So it just, Steve Barber, I started listening to podcasts, right? So I was lucky enough that I'm an older dude, right? Like I'm on like my fourth, fifth life in my nine life existence, if that's what you want to call it in terms of careers, uh, in terms of what I've done in, 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 in my job and in my lives. And you don't look that old. Uh, I got married young and I have teenage daughters and I'm at the point like I have a fiat legacy business where I was able to kind of transition out of and not. So the point is I had time in March, 2020, mm. in March, 2020, when the market crashed, I had enough time to actually do the work to um, gain an understanding of what this thing is and what it actually means and what it does for people and for society. So because I spent the hours um, listening to podcasts and reading books and, and researching everything. Right. Um, like I say, uh, like it's not, it's not, it's not how long you've been in this thing. It's, it's how much work you've allocated um, to this thing in terms of understanding it. Right. So that that's the proof of work in terms of your understanding of Bitcoin. Um, so whether, 
So as a full-time job, essentially, like eight hours a day, listening to podcasts, reading books since March of 2020, that's, that's a kind of how much time that I've spent understanding it. And, and one of the podcasts very early on, probably in like April, was, was Steve Barber talking about mining Bitcoin off flare gas in, in the oil field. And I'm just, I'm just a farm boy. I grew up in Alberta on a farm, working the land. So as soon as I heard that, it blew my mind. I'm like, in the fields that I grew up harvesting grain off of, we could be mining Bitcoin off the wasted flare gas where all these gas wells are, right? Blew my mind. So then that, that was the beginning of my Bitcoin mining um, journey rabbit hole. And then like, as kind of a risk-taking entrepreneur, I'm like, well, I'm going to tell I'm going to try it out. So I just, I got into it right away, started trying it. And luckily enough, it was, it was pretty much the perfect time to get into it in terms of um, cost of hardware. And then, and then um, the price started pumping um, that summer. Right. So luck of timing and, and just kind of, it all came together. And, but essentially from, from a proof of work energy perspective. So, Here's, here's where mining gets it for me. Um, um, it, it's the, mining is the singularity between uh, proof-of-work energy production and um, proof-of-work money production. So it, through the physical infrastructure that is absolutely required um, for Bitcoin mining, and that's, that's machinery, that's rigs, that's generators, that's data centers, that's like all the metal, all the uh, guys digging in the dirt, getting their hands dirty, um, which is required to produce a digital commodity, which is hash rate or Bitcoin. So there is, there is a physical energy infrastructure required to produce um, digital monetary truth. And that's kind of how I view Bitcoin as monetary truth, right? And so that just clicked with my upbringing as a farmer tied to the land and recognizing the, the, the correlation and the uh, manifestation of physical work, proof of work um, to uh, uh, production of a, of a commodity that, that provides value for society. Mm. That was like long-winded and rambling, but. No, no, it's good. I mean, I want more, right? So you, 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 you saw it that way. And you said you got involved at the right time. Rigs were cheap. Price was hadn't pumped yet. But what what did you end up doing? Did you put you know ASICs on one of those you know flare gas wells or like how did you start tinkering with this? Because it's super interesting that mining is increasingly you know first we had like um, people building their own nodes right for so people that never would have thought they would be building hardware you know, in any capacity and building a node is not really building hardware because it's very simple, but you know, like people would go and tinker with that and put it together and, and play around with it. The same is kind of happening with hardware wallets. And I think people are starting to come to appreciate two things. One, it's not as scary and complicated, not so much that you shouldn't give it a whirl. And so there's a lot of like hobbyist mining happening now. And two, there's this growing appreciation for one, just how mind blowing Bitcoin mining is where you can 
it has so many applications. One in terms of like, well, what do you do with the excess heat and what can you mine off of and what energy sources and that kind of stuff. And then just the recognition that like, wow, I can monetize energy at source now. And I, you know, and I, all I need is like a, you know, Starlink satellite to, to facilitate all this and I'm off to the races. And isn't that kind of like insanely revolutionary and mind blowing. And everyone's just, I think just still trying to appreciate what the implications of that are. And part of that process is just going out there and trying, you know, things. And that there seems to be a real cottage industry forming around that. So how did you get start tinkering? Absolutely, man. And I should, I should qualify. Like I didn't come to this singularity realization overnight. Like absolutely not. It's been, it's been a two year journey, right. Of recognizing that the energy uh, and Bitcoin and sound money as a proof of work mechanism really is unequivocally, um, the singularity but uh in terms of dipping my toes getting into it i'm like i'm like i've i've owned and ran businesses my whole life like i've been working on the farm since i was eight years old right i was driving the combine and the drain, grain truck for my dad when i was 12 years old in the field right so i'm used to um trying things out i'm used to um, um being willing to take a risk to see how things are going to work out um, so I dipped my toes uh, with a few hosted rigs, um, with, um, my good buddy Mason at, uh, Blockware Solutions. And at the time, the, the metrics didn't make sense at all. Right. Like, cause price was still way too low. Uh, and these things didn't cash flow or they didn't ROI forever. But I saw, I saw like the hundreds of millions of dollars that the big boys were pouring into the, the industry at this point in time. I'm like, well, if they're doing it, I'm going to, I'm going to risk like 0.1 of 0.1% of my capital and see what happens. And, and it, it worked out awesome. Right. Um, but then the metrics started turning around and then everyone started pouring in. So yeah, then I just started, uh, I got a couple of hash huts from Steve Barber and, and just little 50 kilowatt um, hash huts and put them on one of his uh, stranded gas wells and, and started doing that. And it's kind of just, grown from there and into uh into this year now i'm i'm doing uh, working full-time for for uh, luxor technologies and helping them build out their their mining um their prop mining division so so was that was that something that upstream offered or just did, because you knew steve in some capacity because i didn't know they did like hosted huts sort of thing like i didn't know you could buy the hut and they would plug it in on a gas well for you they, uh, they did for a very short time um, when I got in. So they normally didn't, and Steve um, doesn't now, but they did for a short time because he had he just had a well available. Uh, but yeah, now it's not, a, not an option. And I've, we've since um, moved those, those uh, data centers off to another site. So Gotcha. Is that just because he doesn't have like hosting wells to, to offer people? I won't, I won't uh, pretend to speak for Steve, but right, he, right. he, he has um, made it clear multiple times that he doesn't necessarily um, think that, that mining specifically is the, is the best business for him to be in. He'd mm -hmm, rather use mm -hmm. his skills to, to build his manufacturing, um, his manufacturing business and essentially invent products to create value for the industry. Right. You can yeah, see what I've... he did with the, with the black box and all his other data centers. Right. I've heard him say that a few times. I mean, that's another great example of like this cottage industry where 
you know, now anyone can have a few rigs mining right outside their house, low noise, you know, it's, and now the price of ASICs are coming down. So perhaps, you know, it's a good time to do something like that, but it's really compelling that everyone, well, one, I think people want SaaS flow, right? People want income in Bitcoin and that's, and, you know, to the extent that you get KYC free coin and that's uh, a benefit as well. But I think, you know, there's also some element of people want to be contributing to, you know, securing the network, even if that's somewhat dubious, especially if you're using like uh, hosting facilities and tools and that kind of thing. But um, it's interesting to see it evolve, you know, as we keep saying, like as people, as people's minds get blown about what's really going on here, it's like, it's just too compelling not to dabble in at least. Yeah, you said you said basically the crux of the issue that caught my attention to is SATS flow. So SATS flow great is greater than cash flow. And coming from um, the legacy real estate world, which is is what the business that I've been doing for the last twenty years. So so rental properties, um, construction uh, property appraisals. So just deep in in the fiat um, debt based world, right? And you know, like we all know how how the expansion of, of debt because of our fiat monetary system has, has manifested itself into uh, our real estate values because they, they, most of their value now, especially in Canada, is a store of value guarding against that debasement, right? So, mm. so, but in regards to rental properties, right? It's like, oh, you need cash flow uh, from your rental property to pay off a 30-year mortgage, um, however long that is. So, and then... So I'm used to making like, oh, maybe a hundred or 200 bucks a month per door from a rental property as cash flowing off an, appre an appreciating asset in the hopes that 30 years, I'm going to have something uh, for my retirement, right? That's the general idea in, in the, in the cash flow real estate business that I come from. So then when you talk about SATS flow and in the mining business, this is what really caught my attention is that, is that you're buying a, a hard asset in the miners and, um, you're, you're cash flowing it in, in Satoshis. And depending on the market cycle, that your ROI on that investment is anywhere from eight months to 24 months. So instead of paying off a mortgage on a rental property in 30 years, you're paying off your business and your ROI and your, your hard asset that's, that's cash flowing you sats every single minute of, of every single day in less than two years. And that to me also blew my mind. So I'm like, why would I be spending millions of dollars on real estate to make like $100 a month in cash flow in the hopes that the government doesn't screw me in 30 years and I might have something to show for it? I might as well buy some miners and pay them off in, in like a tenth of the time and be cash flowing Satoshis, the hardest and purest money that the world has ever invented or ever seen right so it, that to me was a no-brainer yeah no shit um uh, i know it's super hard like because of the difficulty adjustment and the changes in price of the asics and the change in the price of bitcoin itself that it's hard to do like you know revenue models and that kind of stuff with with bitcoin mining but have you ever attempted to or have you calculated like a ballpark yield on you know let's say a miner cost 10 grand to procure and then whatever the income you the sats flow you're able to derive from it on an annualized basis like what kind of a yield a miner spits out or is there just too many moving parts 
Yeah. And, and I'm not like a huge financial metrics guy. I'm kind of like, let's go plug these things and do it and, and figure it out and see how it works out. And that's maybe not the best way to go about things, but um, uh, uh, all I can say is like, when I first got into it, we were looking at like 400% ROI um, in terms of yield. I can't, I'm not sure exactly, but now, obviously now that the, the market's come down since then, um, difficulties gone up, hash rates come on the network. Yeah, you're down to still like 60 to 70% ROI, right? So it it's still amazing when you when you look at in, in compared to legacy businesses, but it's not as good as when I started, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, and whether that's in my opinion, a function of the market cycle as we go into the next halving in the next 18 months, and then and then what's going to happen with, with the price of Bitcoin relative to hash rate and difficulty, right? Do you think, I don't know if you've looked back on like the 2017 peak era, but there was a lot of like uh, hosted mining services at the time, way less like well-run or professional operations than currently exist. But like, again, because of all the, the hysteria or not hysteria, but all the excitement, like people got into it, they're paying crazy rates uh, for their energy. And of course, like when the market turned, everyone got roasted and people were underwater, like in their mining investments, why well, in their Bitcoin investment, but in their mining investments for, for a while, do you see something similar happening now or in the next six to 12 months where like all this excitement, a lot of, uh, a lot of activity in the industry, even though I think people are, are, are fairly, they've learned from that and maybe they're, they're less um, willing to accept, you know, super high rates of power and stuff like that. But do you think it, it goes down into another period where it's not such a rosy business and things get consolidated and reshuffled, you know, before the next big swing up? Yeah, man, it's happening right now. We're, we're right at the, right at the start of it. Um, absolutely. Like, and especially Bitcoin mining as a ruthlessly competitive and one of the last, probably the last free market to exist out there. That, that's not completely captured by regulation and, and the moats of large corporations yet. Um, it's subject to um, ruthless competitiveness of the market metrics as well, right? We can't just call up our friendly neighborhood um, uh, government official and ask for a bailout when the market turns against us, right? We have mm. to be prepared for worst case scenarios. And like you say, um, so I don't know if you're familiar with the metric of hash price, um, but essentially, it's it's the profitability of of a miner on any given day based on the hash rate and the price of Bitcoin and the difficulty. So, like you say, in in the 2018 bear market, we bottomed out at six. I think it was around six cents hash price. Um, right now, we we've dropped from 20 to about 12 in the last three weeks. So we're well on our way to revisiting the 2018 lows, in my opinion. And that's just going to keep heading down there uh, as we move into the next halving. Um, so in that regard, yes, absolutely. If you don't prepare yourself uh, for worst case scenarios, you're not going to make it through the bear market in the, this industry. And, and I love um, kind of this analogy uh, of Bitcoin mining as a survivability game, right? So you and me and, and one other guy, uh, whoever it is, let's say Steve Barber, we're out for a walk in the woods, right? 
in, in your native uh, Newfoundland or where I live in BC probably because there's lots of bears in the woods out here. So we're walking through the woods, all of a sudden a grizzly pops out behind us. What do we do? We all take off most likely our flight or flight or fight, fight or flight kicks right. in. We start booking it. Whoever's you, the slowest. <laughs> we only have to be faster than our slowest buddy and he's going to get eaten by the bear. Right. If we survive, we get stronger because those guys drop off the network. Mm. And then as long as we can survive that worst case six cent hash price, mm. everyone, the guys that can't drop off the network, difficulty drops, our profitability goes up and we're stronger going into the next cycle. But yeah. if you don't survive, you're just getting eaten by the bear and see you later. Right. Yeah. So gen generally speaking, like the hash price is basically, uh, that has to be your, your maximum energy cost, right? Broadly speaking, because if like, if, if the hash price is 12 cents and yours is 18 cents, then you're underwater pretty much. Right. Right. Like hash price is, um, I'm probably going to screw this up, but it's like, um, dollars per tera hash per second per day. So um that's how much your miner is is generating um on that any given day based on the network difficulty and the price of bitcoin right and so, so it's just a, it's just an easy metric to say to a profitability metric of the mining industry at any snapshot in time right and so how does one other than trying to find the cheapest energy possible prepare for these downturns and these consolidations? Like what other variables would one be considering there? Yeah, it's an energy game, man. Like we know the singularity of Bitcoin mining and energy, it's all merging, especially now that, especially now that the financialization of the mining industry is in full force with all the Wall Street um, fiat cockbucks coming into the game as well, right? So, so um, generally speaking, we know the best operators out there and the biggest guys out there um, are sub four cent uh, power all in. And, and a lot of them are way lower than that. And so if you're two and a half to four cent power um, and you're translating to mining a Bitcoin, like at sub 10,000, a lot of guys are down to like $6,000 if their cost to mine a Bitcoin. You just realize that's what you have to compete against. If you don't think you can compete against that, then there's a high likelihood that you're going to get wrecked and you're going to get eaten by the bear. Right. Right. So, so if you can't, if you don't have an edge, it's like anything, what, what are you good at? And what's your edge? If you don't have an edge in the market, you probably shouldn't be in that market. If you can't source the lowest cost of energy, if you don't have the expertise to put together um, an efficient operation, uh, know how to actually run a business efficiently, um, to, to achieve that lowest cost of production, then there's a good chance you're gonna, you're not gonna make it. But I mean, that's just the nature of, of a proof of work system that, that, that rewards you based on, on the skills you put into it, right? Totally. And so as a consideration, if you are one of those that are basically underwater, you either have to determine whether it's in your best interest to just turn them off and wait until it's profitable again, or, sell the rigs to someone who is profitable and and are those your two options in the in that scenario yeah if you can turn them off like hopefully you're not locked into a ppa a power purchase agreement at 10 cents a kilowatt hour um 
and then your your rigs aren't aren't posted as collateral for for that energy provider and then all of a sudden you know all of a sudden you're underwater and you have a a fifty thousand dollar power bill every month that you can't afford to pay like your business is done right and they, they're mm. taking your your miners and you're screwed so so generally speaking yeah it like it all depends on your operation but if you can afford to turn them off or if you can afford to pay your power bill for a few months losing money and hope that the bitcoin price recovers until it swings back up again then it's just how long you can survive essentially right what do you think the influence of uh the fiat maximalists the cuck bucks has on the industry because like right on the surface the first thing that comes to mind is because of the you know the access to financing of public companies when there is a downturn they're more able to leverage the you know the time value of money or they're more able to leverage financing capabilities to see them through these races that we were referring to and so they're more able to survive and then when things become good again they've consolidated the position even further and of course from like a a hardcore bitcoin you know, and capture and security point of view, like, does this mean that over time things are consolidating into the entities that are the most easy and likely to be captured and regulated and, and be uh, corrupted in some capacity? So what, what else, what, uh, what are the other implications of the financialization of the mining industry, let's say? Yeah, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Like, honestly, I, I see that as a huge risk factor. Um, um, you got you got the pub codes who have have easy access to zero cost of capital debt and equity and uh, for example a lot of them aren't even selling any of their mine coin they're just using the the debt they raised um to pay their power bills and their expenses um so so yes if they're able to just keep existing on fiat debt that's raised easily from the public markets uh, they're going to be able to survive longer than the guy who has to actually produce something of value to pay their bills every month, right? And so, like you say, what's that going to do? It's going to, they're going to be able to eat up the guys who can't survive uh, and then centralize that hash rate um, into their their fiat entities. How bad is this going to get? No one knows, right? Like Bitcoin has a way of of kind of enforcing decentralization through through market events, right? Like you look at you look at the China Bitcoin uh, mining ban last summer, sixty percent of the hash rate. Oh, we're going to mine Bitcoin, or we're going to ban mining. All of a sudden, we're all in Texas, we're all in North America. It's a lot more distributed now, right? So, mm. is this the next centralization risk? I think it, I think it's definitely something to keep an eye on. Um, we definitely aren't playing a fair fight. You know, whenever we're going up against um, the fiat cuck bucks of Wall Street who are able to raise at effectively um, negative real interest rates when inflation's eight and a half that they say, but we know real the real rate is like 15 or 20% and they're raising capital at 1% or 2%. Like it's exactly what Saylor's doing he has a speculative attack on the dollar to buy bitcoin but they're doing it to mine bitcoin is that a centralization risk i think so how bad is that going to get no one knows right Mm. what what are the trade-offs or like what are there any benefits to um mining bitcoin by operators that are not public and that are you know let's say private non-fiat maxi miners are there any benefits that 
that those operators have to counterbalance them. Like, you know, one might just be that, yeah, you're a public company and you can access cheap capital, but it also means if regulations change, you're the first to have to shut down and there's nothing you can say or do about it. It's just like regulation happens and you're done. Whereas some of the more under the radar or private miners may be able to operate in the, in the shadows for longer. And maybe that's somewhat of a redeeming attribute on their side of the ledger. Like what other benefits do you think there are to being, you know, uh, non-fiat miners? Yeah. And we're going to have to talk about like, like maximalism after this as well, a little bit maybe, but um, sure. just because I'm not a toxic maximalist. We're all subject to the fiat world, whatever we can get into that. Right. But sure. I do recognize the fact that, that, that Bitcoin is the best money that's ever been invented. And so I would rather focus on, on producing Bitcoin than fiat. Right. So, um, but that, that, like you say, can be one of the correcting mechanisms um, that comes along because that is a, a regulatory risk when you see huge mines like, like Riot down in, in Riot Windstone down in Rockdale, Texas by Austin. They have six, 700 megawatts just sitting there in, in structures that are built on the ground. They're, the governor comes and visits them. They're going to be the first ones to go down if if all of a sudden regulations turn against them, right? And then that'll be like the difficulty adjustment for regulation. So now all these private miners who are off grid or or not necessarily or aren't public, like they're going to benefit um, if if something like that happens. So um, definitely a trade off. Um, yeah. Is that? Are there any other benefits to? And when I say fiat mining, I mean like appealing to the fiat maxis as Steve is often likes to characterize them. Um, are there any other benefits that you can see to being smaller, more scrappy, less beholden to public markets, less beholden to regulations, that kind of thing? Oh, absolutely, man. Um, number one for, for guys like me and anyone who wants to run a private company, like that's your sovereignty, right? So as right. soon as, as soon as you, as soon as you um, take money from someone, you don't work for yourself anymore, right? So, so that's why, in my opinion, there's always gonna be um, many, many small private guys, whether that's a whole bunch of plebs running rigs in their houses, in their black boxes, um, just for the fact that they want non-KYC sats, or the fact that they're heating their houses, they're piping the air into their furnaces and offsetting their heating costs um, and, and trading that for Satoshis, or whether you have um, small private companies um, that are putting a few data centers on flared natural gas sites um, or whatever else they're doing. Yeah, those, those are, that's the trade-offs of those guys who are gonna benefit from, from true self-sovereignty from not being able to be captured by any of that regulatory risk. Mm. Um, and even the fact that they're mobile, right? So if you use a mobile data center in 12 hours or six hours, you can have that thing picked up and moved offsite and somewhere else if, if something happens, right? So this is the beautiful thing about um, decentralized um, monetization of stranded energy assets. Um, there's no such thing as a stranded energy asset right now, now that you have Bitcoin mining, 
and and uh, as Saifedean likes to put it, like like it's the first location agnostic um, monetization of of electricity through through mining Bitcoin, right? Um, anywhere we can go anywhere. Uh, Marty Bent says we take the market to the molecule. Wherever the molecule is, we're going to mine the Bitcoin. So in that regard, um, it's amazing. You can we're just going to move if, if something happens essentially. Uh, and the big fiat pub codes, they probably won't have that option if something does happen. Right. So just adaptability, flexibility in the event that landscape changes. And in this world today and in Bitcoin, it, it kind of always does. So, you know, you never, I guess both approaches have their risks. Um, what do you want to say about maximalism? What's on your mind? <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say one more thing about the, uh, the financialization, because I guess uh, we've this, since, since the financialization of the mining industry, we've seen this trend uh, toward the big guys um, putting out the most hash rate. And so essentially a bifurcation of the network, right? Where you have the big mm. fiat pub codes uh, controlling the majority of the hash rate on the network. And then you have however many percent of the little private guys and the plebs who are off here. Um, just surviving because that's what they want to do and they believe in it and it's still profitable for them, but they're never going to be able to compete with the amount of hash rate that the big guys are putting on. So you have the bifurcation of the network and the mining network, but these guys are never going to go away. So no matter what happens, the network will be secured in my opinion. And that's a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. But I guess as we opened up this part of the discussion with, it's like, well, the fiat mining codes potentially outlive the little guy because they can stay alive longer in bad conditions. And then as is always the case in public fiat markets, consolidation happens over time. At a certain point in the future, one massive conglomerate or one massive company owns all the, the built up or built in mining capacity. To what extent does that uh, increase the chances of 51% attacks and all that kind of stuff? I mean, obviously this has been thought about by many people and it's perhaps one of the risks, but it, it's, as I think you said already, it is inevitable as long as the fiat system exists in its current form. And that is a, who the hell knows how long that's going to be the case. I mean, how long is capital going to be so easily available? I mean, sure. As long as the, the money printer is like on overdrive, but at some point that has to stop. And what kind of a position does it put the fiat miner or the, you know, exactly. the, what, yeah, what kind of position does it put those miners in and how able are they, how resilient are they and how able are they to survive and, you know, all sorts of unknowns, uh, I guess is the. We can't the predict the future, answer. man. We can just prepare for it, right? So, uh, yeah, no one knows exactly how it's going to play out. But anyway, yeah, so toxic maxis have had a really bad name in the last, year and a half, two years, right? Whatever that is, is that, a, is that a function of the mainstreaming of Bitcoin as we went through the last bull market last year up to 69K? And then is everyone who believes in Bitcoin all of a sudden a toxic maxi? Do we, do we hate everyone else? No, like, like just say, just, just get rid of toxic and just say Bitcoin maximalist, right? And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we hate our fellow man for what they believe in or what in my opinion is simply a lack of time spent understanding this thing 
that we call Bitcoin, right? It's not, it's not their fault that whether through, through choice or ignorance or lack of ability to spend the time to do the work that they don't have the level of understanding that some of us do because we've been able to spend more time on it. I don't hate them for that. Do I recognize the fact that Bitcoin is the purest and the best and the most beautiful manifestation of monetary truth to ever exist? Yes. And am I going to spend my time on that because I recognize that and I realize that? Yes. But I don't hate my brother for what he chooses to believe in at any certain point in time. And in that regard, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, but I personally hate the term toxic maximalist and how people just want to label us with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, my perspective on all this, which I've shared a few times is aside from like a very, 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 very small group of people that are just like pretty much kind of tweaked and insane and like throw their bullshit and insecurities and whatever else is going on in their life onto other people at any given reason, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else, Aside from them, the toxic maximalism thing is is a joke. Like it's such it's so obviously uh, a mischaracterization of what's happening here. And it's not to say that people don't people wouldn't don't come into the space and if they espouse some false understanding of what's going on, they get treated in a manner that they're not accustomed to in terms of the the niceties or sensibilities of you know the discourse that they may have engaged in the past but it's like all those people don't hate those people i think you know they're first of all we're all just figuring out what it's like to uh engage in this thing and be upgraded by this thing and have this level of freedom available to us and perhaps there's a, an element of just like uh excitement to it all but i honestly think well, I, I don't think in most cases it's a proper characterization of the discourse that's happening, but to the extent that it is, like to the extent that like too many have fun staying poors or not going to make it or being dropped and stuff like that, I've always kind of liked it because to me, and like I don't engage in it much myself because it's just not how I get down. Like if I'm, if someone's not getting it, and I'm doing like, I make a decent effort to explain it, then I'm happy to just let it go ununderstood. You know, I don't need people to understand the thing that I am super passionate about. But what I see it primarily a function of, and this probably happens, is a, 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 a subconscious phenomenon mostly, is that it's like Bitcoin espouses and engenders or is a representation of certain principles, I think. And I think those principles are truth and freedom and honesty and integrity. And, you know, we could fill, we could go down the list perhaps, but I think, and those are represented in Bitcoin and they're rubbing off on the people that they're both attracting and rubbing off on people that attempt to understand and engage with Bitcoin. And I feel like it, there's a, there's a recognition that humility is a very important aspect of learning the truth about anything. Right. And if we're kind of circling around an extremely profound truth, then humility is even more required. And when people come in, you know, and usually it's like some well-known person who's established credibility in another area and they expect, you know, to be treated a certain way. And perhaps as a result, they're kind of egotistical, you know, the proverbial, I just, I just heard about Bitcoin. I'm here to fix Bitcoin sort of person. 
I think all the the vitriol that they might get, and perhaps not that's maybe that's not the most appropriate word, but you know, perhaps the the less than welcoming rhetoric that they receive is a reflection of how they're attempting to engage this asset, but more importantly, this culture. And what I see the function of that being is simply a means of revealing character. And I do think like I think one of the things, because there is a parallel culture being formed here. I mean, as we often talk about, money is the base layer. And so if we change out the base layer, it's going to foster and elicit a different culture on top of it. And one of the, the primary like concerns of the people engaging in this culture seems to be they want to know the truth of the character of the people that they're engaging with. Like, how much can I trust you? What's your integrity like? How much do you, you know, are you an honest actor? All that kind of stuff. And this, uh, this type of rhetoric or this phenomenon of the quote unquote, like the immune system, the hornets, the toxic maximalism seems to be a very useful um, or effective mechanism or filter for discovering aspects of people's character. And if you take it with a grain of salt and if you like kind of have fun with it and you give it back and you just keep going, no matter what you get in return, because you're intent on understanding, you know, what's really going on here, then you're welcomed in with open arms and people like, you know, you were down at the conference uh, recently, like it's the most loving, like community I, you could ever hope to be a part of. Like people are so generous and, and engaging and welcoming that kind of stuff. But there's this initial like, who like what are you about sort of feeling out process and if you fail that test if you get all you know pissed off and offended by oh i can't believe you speak to me like that and like and and you you stop pursuing it as a result then that i think that says a lot about your character and i think that's the point absolutely man well said it's like max kaiser likes to say like bitcoin's a mirror right um it just reflects back on us what we are and a lot of times people can't handle that sure i mean we all have stuff we don't like about ourselves right and all the stuff that perhaps we're ignoring and we'd rather not be confronted with and here you have this like raging hornet's nest of uh of signal that's just pr pretty much maybe putting it in your face at times and there's two ways you can handle that confront recognize keep moving forward or turn from it and i think I, that's, I think that's kind of what's going on in, with the toxic maximalism stuff and why I, I appreciate it, even when it happens to, you know, close friends, you know, when, they're, when they bear the brunt of it. You know, I think there's still a, a, a tremendous benefit. In, and we have to understand, it's, like, it's not like an intentional thing that everyone gets together and be like, this is how we're going to make sure people come into the community. This is an emergent phenomenon of behavior generated by the very thing that we're attempting to understand, which is Bitcoin. You know, it's not like anyone, there's no ringleader here. Nobody's in charge of it. This is why we should, what we should be asking is the question should be, why is this thing eliciting this type of behavior in people? That's a more interesting question as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And to me, it's, it's an immediate filter um, for the people who are intellectually honest enough and humble enough to accept the fact that they need to listen and learn instead of um, just spout off their own opinions and project their own insecurities onto, onto others, right? So, 100%. I mean, like, 
and this is why we're here, right? Because if you and I, well, I'll speak for myself, but I, I feel like it might be the same with you. But if, if I was pursuing something and I came with a false notion of that which I was pursuing and I was bold enough to express that when I showed up on the scene, which I probably wouldn't be, but for the sake of argument, let's say I am. And a bunch of people were like, you're a fucking idiot. Go fuck yourself. You don't know what the hell you're talking about, all that kind of stuff. I feel like my response would be like, okay, but don't care, <laughs> you know, like still want to learn more and, and figure out what's going on here. And so, you know, that, it's just kind of a litmus test about how dedicated you are to understanding the truth or the meaning of the thing. And again, as you say, I mean, how much your ego is involved in maintaining some notion of yourself. And as a result, how does that hinder the degree to which you're able to be humble in the face of new information and new ideas and new people and all that kind of stuff. And if you can get past that, you, you start to realize those people that are yelling at you are the best, the smartest, <laughs> most intelligent, um, the nicest guys who will lay down for you at any point in time that you've ever come across in your entire existence. Exactly. Um, but you have, so don't, you have to get past yourself first in order to get there, right? Right. And don't you think there should be somewhat of a gauntlet to, to gain access to something like that? Like you, that shouldn't just be, you know, anyone who signs on the dotted line gets access to that. I mean, that, that is a tremendous asset in life to have, you know, I've, I've said this a bunch of times as well. And the, the two conferences that I've been in uh, last year and this year have really like amplified this but like now i can call several hundred people that i've met through twitter and podcasts and the conferences like pretty much best friends not that like we haven't spent the requisite time together to share experiences that really go into that right but like all the the fertile ground is there that all is that's needed for us to like become best friends or strengthen our friendship is just more experiences together but like all the alignment of values and all the all the other stuff is, is there. And that's such a tremendous gift. It might be like one of the greatest gifts in life to have more trusting, loving, you know, engaging relationships in one's life. And so, the, you know, there should be a cost to it to some degree, right? You shouldn't just be able to press a button and poof, it all appears. Cause then of course you're not going to appreciate it. Yeah, man. Uh, but when you distill everything down in our lives, like the only barrier to to greater learning or, or greater wisdom is is our Yourself. own ego right mm -hmm. so this is just once again bitcoin bitcoin boils everything down to first principles and the base layer of human existence in every aspect of our of our actions right doesn't matter what it is whether it's our relationships with other people whether it's the mining industry whether like it's just, it's the fundamental base layer of monetary truth, as I like to call it, right? And I would prefer to build off a foundation, a base layer foundation, rather than being focused on the eighth and ninth and tenth and third and fourth order effects of, of something else that I don't really understand yet, right? 100%, 100%. And you know, you, you say it's like, it's the base layer monetary, monetary base layer or base layer of monetary truth. And perhaps that is the right, you know, moniker in terms of monetary to use, but like, as, as you're saying that, and of course, as I've thought about and explored a lot in my stuff, it's like, it, I mean, what do you call the thing that distills every domain of perception and interaction to its, its bare truth? I mean, what the fuck do you call such a thing? I mean, that is a very 
unusual thing to encounter even. And it, it seems like it, like, it seems like monetary is too narrow of uh, a moniker to use to describe such a thing, which again is why in a lot of my stuff, we, I explore the, the religious or theological or philosophical connotations to all this stuff because it seems to be relevant to uh, the thinking that's been done in those areas before us, you know, that's come before. But it's just, it, it just never ceases to blow my mind. And when I hear, you know, people like you just say the same thing, like it, it, it strips everything down to what is true. You know, it's, it's, it's like bare principles of, of what is most true and what is most valuable. And from that place, you're better able to orient your behavior in order to align with it or to avail of it or to engage it or to contribute to it more and to, and to bring more of that value into your life, whether it be in the form of a relationship or in the form of sats flow or in the form of freedom and sovereignty, whatever it may be. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> I gotta, I gotta be careful um, in my dealing with, with normies in the normie world. Um, not not sounding crazy. Yeah, when you start speaking about truth, um, um, and whether or not it is or it isn't, um, the fact remains that maybe a better way to put it is, um, Bitcoin is a mon is our monetary manifestation of truth. Mm. So, so maybe it's not truth but it is the physical and digital representation and manifestation of the best form of truth that we know exists on this earth at this point in time. And I'm going to take full advantage of that. hundred percent. So speaking of which, um, what, you know, what are you up to these days? Are you still, cause I know you're working, I think you're working for a Bitcoin company, right? Uh, in the mining space. And you're also still, you know, tinkering with your own, rigs in, yeah. in certain places yeah full-time with um luxor technologies uh luxor is a mining pool i have my uh, proof of work mining shirt on right now even though you can't see it very good <laughs> I, oh nice. come on it's trying anyway. to blur it out <laughs> yeah proof of work mining um basically just doing the same thing for them that i was doing for myself right just trying to plug in more miners find cheap energy uh, deploy hash rate, but in a context um, of the the vertical integration of, of their business. They're a software company. Uh, they're a mining pool. Um, they're kind of an institutional advisory service, um, uh, building out basically a full vertical stack of everything to do uh, with Bitcoin um, software. Uh, uh, big uh, looking into. Uh, hash rate as a derivative and then hedging product on top of that. So, so essentially like the meeting of, of the fiat business world and, and, the, and the, this new thing we call, we call the Bitcoin industry and building out uh, digital software product and physical infrastructure um, to meet every needs uh, from a vertical integration standpoint. And yeah, I, they just got me super busy. Um, trying to plug in more miners essentially, which is what I love doing. I go get my hands dirty. I lift rigs. I put them on racks. Uh, we source energy and we, uh, we deploy more hash rate. So, so your, awesome. your, your job is just to find the energy and plug in miners and 
enhance the hash rate under Luxor's control yeah. sort of thing? Yeah, essentially I'm a plug plugging in rigs for myself, <laughs> myself and for, for Luxor. So it's, it's pretty much uh, living the dream right now, man. It's awesome. And what about your own, um, you like mining uh, stuff? Like what are you up to? And share only what you feel comfortable mm. sharing, obviously. Yeah, I've shared on Twitter my hash cave in my in my uh, shop on my property. I just got a few rigs running in there, and, and um, my wife thought I was uh, another degree of um, crazy when I was drilling holes in the side of my shop at 1 a.m. in the morning uh, last winter to get the exhaust the hot air out so that they didn't overheat <laughs> and they would actually run. So anyway, those are all going good now, and just so mining at home. Um, it still makes sense even at today's price if you're running uh, uh, an efficient machine on residential property um, electricity rates. So it's still pretty awesome in that regard. And then, yeah, just just still doing a bit of stuff in the in the stranded nat gas and the oil field and whatever else I can lay my hands on. Right? Are you inclined to like go around Canada and find stranded energy resources? Because you know if for no other reason, just how stupid regulations have been that there seems to be, and not even just in oil and gas. I mean, there's probably a bunch of like really small scale, uh, abandoned like hydro in different parts of the country and whatever, like, have you been compelled to look into that and like, see, see what kind of markets you see, what kind of molecules you can bring markets to? Yeah, man. That's my, that's my Eldorado. The, the ultimate search, right? The the never ending search for stranded energy resources. So um, you'll also see uh, a few weeks ago, I posted on a video on Twitter. Uh, I went and checked out a private uh, hydro dam in, in the mountains close to me, not too close to me, but um, yeah, essentially there is a whole bunch of these independent power producers who, who have, you know, 100 to 120 year old infrastructure that was built uh, for, um, the silver and the mining industry back in the day in the mountains. So you got, you got uh, little hydro dams that are now, they can't sell their power to, to the grid anymore because they've been pushed out by, by BC Hydro and, and, and Fortis where I am here in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So essentially um, independent, sovereign, stranded uh, hydroelectric dams that have their own power production capacity um, and a lot of them have nothing, nowhere to send it right now. So that's definitely one of one of the areas that I'm focusing on right now. I presume many of those are owned by the province, though, right? Like, are they even willing to sell them to private enterprise? Like, is there no, a bunch of red tape no, involved? No, they're mo- like the ones I'm talking about are all, all owned by private individuals. So these are independent power producers who own the land, they own the dam. They own the water rights to the river and they have been selling power to the grid historically, but due to uh, certain developments such as the provincial government um, building a massive uh, site C dam up in Northern BC, um, they've, they haven't, they got basically haven't got their power contracts renewed. So there's one area of opportunity um, in my area. And then things like Colorado, Um, just brought in a law where it's illegal to flare any gas at all. So a lot of the oil guys there at 100 plus oil are going crazy if they can't pump their oil. Um, 
because they have gas to flare. So they're calling their they need solutions. To come in there and take, take the gas off them. Right. So there's always opportunity all over. And that's definitely a major focus. It's just going around and finding those. Yeah. That's super exciting, man. I won't uh, make you share any more of your, your secret expeditions or anything like that, but it's, I mean, it's all over Twitter. Don't worry. We're all, yeah. We're just going to say, we're all thinking (laughs) it, right. We're all like, there must be so much power that is just has been stranded for a variety of reasons. And why can I not stick on plug some ASICs into those power sources? It's, it's crazy exciting. Um, Anything else you want to cover before we shut this thing down? Anything else you want to get Um, off your chest? What did I see here? I don't know how. So another cool thing about, about Bitcoin mining is, and then it just goes, cuts right to the heart, the base layer of, of the Malthusian versus the Promethean um, struggle that we're going through right now. Right. So we see, we see all these um, energy, um, whatever they are, the, the, the regulatory and the fiat guys who say we need to use less energy because we're in an energy crisis and we, there's not enough energy to go around in this world. And that's a Malthusian view of, of we need to reduce our consumption or else humanity isn't going to be able to survive. Right. Well, we reject that view, right? We, we choose to take the Promethean view of production and, and creating um, more energy and the more energy you create actually um, allows civilization to flourish because it's a direct correlation between between cheap energy production and civilizational flourishing throughout history. And so it's a beautiful thing to see that that Bitcoin mining is is the manifestation of that Promethean uh, production of of civilizational flourishing where it's the absolute best monetization of stranded and cheap energy production. And that's going to actually be good for humanity, not bad for humanity. I very well said, and I totally agree. And it's so, I mean, this is why we call it clown world, right? Because so many things are perfectly the opposite of what is true or good for humanity. And these are the policies that at least some or many of the political class in the world today are pursuing you know, because I've, ex- I've been exploring on, on my pod a lot, like the idea of progress, right? And, and because how do you know how to, to apply yourself or how to orient yourself, like where you want to go if you don't know, um, well, how, how do you get to where you want to go if you don't know where you want to go, basically? And like, you know, maybe progress on a civilizational level is somewhat emergent, you know, as we all decide for ourselves what we value, it just bubbles up. But certainly there's been like a, a mantra of progress imposed on people by the political class over the last several decades. And I think we'd all largely reject that, but it begs the question, like, what is progress? And, you know, I've been exploring on this podcast, like, well, how is like that 30 year old dude who lived in, you know, ancient Manoa 4,500 years ago and who was like, was in good shape and ate good food and like, pursued meaningful work and like, you know, life was just good. And maybe he only lived to 65 and not 77, but who cares? I mean, what, is that the main metric? Just having, you know, because it certainly is in our day and age, like life expectancy is like one of the primary metrics of progress. And 
side note, perhaps this is why we like our medical care system is so obsessed with just getting people to hang on to every last breath of life, even when they're like so much of who they are and their, their ability to engage in life has departed. You know, we have such a perverse approach to death, broadly speaking, but you know, point being what should be progress. And someone brought up on the podcast the other day, and which is kind of what you're referring to is like, at least one of the metrics should be how much energy is available per human being, right? Like what is the energetic capacity per each human being on average? And as you say, that electron. Yeah. And, and as you say, like, I think you, it's, it's pretty obvious that the more energy available to each person, at least at the very least, the more options you have to increase the quality of your life, even if you don't take them. And I think even by that metric in the U S it's like, it had been going up for a long time, but I think it's actually started to reverse course. Someone, someone will have to check me on that or I'll have to check it later. But I think it's actually started to go in the, in the opposite direction, which of course, based on this logic would, would be bad. But I think it's very encouraging that what Bitcoin represents for the bringing to market of more and more energy and, and fostering an energy revolution actually is going to bode extremely well for, you know, at least the options that we have available to us and the energy that we have available to us to execute on or devote ourselves to whatever we find most meaningful as individuals and as a species, basically. Yeah. It's when, when the electrification of everything, um, back in the late 1800s, um, was a step change for society in terms of living standards, right? And now Lynn Alden talks about this all the time. If we, at no point in history has, has society moved to a less dense energy source mm-hmm. and actually progressed. So like burning wood to burning coal to burning natural gas and oil. And now we're going to a less dense energy source in wind and solar. And we think that's gonna be the salvation. Like, what about nuclear? We abandoned nuclear in 1950s and, and what WTF happened in 1971, right? So mm. we're never going to get to, you know, a Kardashev, even the type one civilization on the energy scale, unless we choose to adopt more dense energy sources rather than less dense. Yeah. Well, hopefully the brief fiat interregnum will be seen as an abomination uh, in the story of history, and we quickly corrected course and wound up in a place that was orders of magnitude better for on every single domain and metric you could think of. And this is what we're doing. This is what we're talking about. And this is what we're both, you know, devoting our lives to. And uh, it's a tremendous privilege. And it's been awesome to uh, talk to you further about it all today, man. So I appreciate it. And if any last words, let it rip, and then we'll shut it down. Yeah, I have hope, man. I think we're winning. Like, like this is what we're doing, and we're we're going through the fourth turning. Um, you'll see on my pinned tweet there, like the the five most transformational books I read in 2020 was When Money Dies, The Fourth Turning, The Bitcoin Standard, The Price of Tomorrow, and The Sovereign Individual. And I think if if Solid. if you don't do anything, just go read those five books, and I'll give you an excellent representation and idea of of where we've come from. Uh, what we're doing now, um, um, what's going to happen in the future from Jeff Booth's book, The Price of Tomorrow, and then kind of how we need to conduct ourselves as a society through the sovereign individual and the Bitcoin standard. And it's like, I appreciate 
guys like you, the amount of quality content that's out there now um, in terms of podcasts and, and books and, and online clubhouse and Twitter spaces, like it's been, it's been amazing in, in my journey in terms of speeding it along. Right. So um, I think we're winning and it's going to be amazing. I'm excited and I'm hopeful for the future. And that's, that's what Bitcoin gives us too. Right. hundred percent. Well said, man. And uh, those are amazing book recommendations. And good luck in, in what you're doing. I look forward to catching up again in another 6 to 12 months and see how things are going then. Thanks, buddy. Have a good day. All right, brother. Take care. See ya.